Welcome to Wisdom, Love, and Beauty, a podcast for the soul and the home of dangerous wisdom. This is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, and today we will continue our inquiry into the nature of magic. Last time we looked at three ways to understand magic, all of them closely related. We can think of a magical attitude or magical consciousness arising from the sense that life involves engagement. The world has no place for wallflowers because it has no walls. If we live in a participatory cosmos, then we live in a magical cosmos. We can keep in mind that cosmos, the word, means ordering. If we live in a sacred creative ordering or patterning, and if we participate in how that patterning unfolds, then we live in a magical world. Magic is synonymous with this sense of sacred creative. Secondly, we can think of magic as an art of awareness or an art of attunement with what is and what might be. Magic means training the mind and the heart and the body and the world so that we live in attunement with reality, in attunement with the nature of our own mind and in attunement with the mind of nature. I think it's very significant that the scientist Gregory Bateson called one of his books, Mind and Nature, A Necessary Unity. After considering those two ways of thinking about magic, we, we considered the three principles of magic offered by the poet William Butler Yeats. Now we'll pick up on that first principle now and inquire a little further into it so that we can move into the second principle. The first principle, to remind us all again, goes like this, that the borders of our minds are ever-shifting and that many minds can flow into one another, as it were, and create or reveal a single mind, a single energy. We began considering that principle as a mother tree that might properly belong to our ecology of mind. And indeed, we began to think of the mind itself as more akin to a forest than to a tree in a forest. We did that by considering the science and the love wisdom of mind, which are really the same thing. Love wisdom at its best always involves an art and science of mind. Indeed, love wisdom differs from science in that it provides a holistic art and science of heart, mind, body, world, and cosmos without fragmentation. Science, properly speaking, could be more skillful. We're referring to the science of the dominant culture. The theme of wholeness carries through most of our contemplations. Really, it carries through all of them in one way or another. And you can find it throughout the Wisdom, Love, and Beauty blog post as well. Wholeness means what we are transcends the atomizing temptation that our own skin can lure us into. Magic means becoming so comfortable in our own skin that we no longer hide behind our skin. We become truly at home in, through, and as the cosmos, beginning right where we are ecologically rooted. Now, last time we spoke about an essay by the philosopher Arthur Bentley. We didn't mention the title of the essay, I don't think. He called it The Human Skin, Philosophy's Last Line of Defense. That's a delightful title. Today's professors of philosophy seem to be hiding from a non-local way of knowing and being, living and loving. But philosophy is not an academic subject, as we consistently 
point out. Philosophy means the way we do things. Love wisdom is just how we do things. And so we're talking about the philosophy of the dominant culture, really. And that philosophy infects all of us at an unconscious level and also at a conscious level. Sometimes consciously we embrace certain elements of the dominant culture's philosophy that if we reflected more carefully, we would find incoherent. We contemplate here the way the whole of the dominant culture hides from magic, in a way, and tries to get us all to hide from it, too. We hide behind this last line of defense as we continue our assault against the world and against anyone we want to attack or marginalize. That's what's so nice about the title that Bentley gave it, Philosophy's Last Line of Defense. You see the thread we're making. It's not philosophy, it's the whole culture. A culture has a general philosophy. The people of it have a philosophy. And if there's a line of defense, that means there's some kind of war, something we have to be protected from. That's how Freud even viewed civilization. He said the very reason of civilization, the raison d'etre, is to protect us from nature. What an incredible thing. And it wasn't as if he was lamenting this or something. He thought he was giving an accurate description of what culture is. It's extraordinary. And that's how the dominant culture is. It's us against nature. And so we need that line of defense. And we need that line of defense against all the weirdos we don't like. Right? Anybody, some group we want to marginalize. And whatever we want to call them. We want to call them aggressive, they're thieves, they're lazy, whatever it is. And then we hide behind our skin, which makes it, although Bentley probably didn't have it in mind, makes it all the more significant that the skin can have colors. Boy, that really lets some people emphasize the skin. The dominant culture roots itself in ignorance. That's, I mean, that's not a, a big deal to say that, as if it's particularly bad. Lots of cultures in the past have done that. Socrates saw that as a problem in his culture. Of course, his culture was part of the root of the currently dominant culture. And the current dominant culture roots itself not only in ignorance, but also in fear and craving. We hide behind our skin and our flag in fear and in craving, being told we're not good enough and, oh, don't you need this and don't you want that? And here's the nice thing. And we start reaching out for the medication of consumption in whatever form, digital, pharmaceutical, comestible, whatever, travel. And Arthur Bentley invites us to sense the crudity of this way of knowing and being. And calling it a crudity amounts to a sort of tremendous irony, you know, like the tragic irony of the ancient Greek playwrights, because our intellectualism endows us with a sense of sophistication, even if we don't consider ourselves intellectual. If we're, we might be a plumber, but still our fancy 4 by 4 truck is very sophisticated. The skeptics in our culture skeptics about a lot of the things that we might find taken very seriously in the traditions of love wisdom, the skeptics speak with great haughtiness. And so many of us feel superior to nature with our laptops or, and our SUVs. And it doesn't necessarily be, feel conscious, you know. You pull out your laptop and you might not think that you're thumbing your nose at nature. But there is this kind of strange style of consciousness that goes with the technology that we have. And then, of course, there are more obvious examples. We might get in our four-wheel drive vehicle, and we really feel a power over rain and snow. And some of us can go ripping around landscapes with the utmost human privilege, without any sense of the sacredness of the ecologies themselves, and without any compunction about trampling around in the home of other beings. We don't like them trampling in our home. If we want to ride our dirt bike or our mountain bike, well, we'll do as we please. We might think mountain bikes are all very nice, 
but the, the world didn't really evolve to be trampled by mountain bikes. If we want to fill in a wetland and expand our human agendas and our artificial ecologies, we'll do it. And Bentley says we do all of this in a way crucially dependent on our relationship to skin as a line of defense. And we see our activity as rather sophisticated and advanced. Now, on the other hand, many so-called primitive cultures, and we would put that word in quotes if we could, uh, send you podcast air quotes there, many so-called primitive cultures had well-established practices for realizing the wispiness of skin, for realizing that our skin is not even like the soil of a forest, which of course is much more rich and alive than the way we treat our skin. But our skin, in fact, it's not even like the soil of a forest, but our habitual relation to skin covers over the very real way that we ourselves are more like a forest than an acorn. I mean, really, we don't even see ourselves as a tree as much as a little capsule, an acorn. We're more like the earth as a whole than like stones of the earth scattered and separate, even though we live like stones scattered and separate. Various rites, rituals, ceremonies, celebrations, prayers, vision quests, and other arts of awareness, including a wide range of spiritual and shamanic practices, have helped human individuals and human cultures to orient themselves in ways that don't get hooked on or ensnared by that one authentic criterion of the universe, that delusion of the skin. And let's not malign skin. Skin is wonderful. It's miraculous and itself quite magical. We're talking about a delusion, a style of relating to ourselves and the world. Recall that Bentley calls this delusion about our own skin the one universal criterion of knowledge. We just use that phrase. That's where it comes from. If you're still trying to remember the last episode, or maybe you were skipping ahead, that's okay. Now, we should confront the fact that we may not think of this criterion as a criterion. In other words, if someone asks us about our criterion for knowledge, or how do you know, or what, what's the a criterion of knowledge we all agree on, we don't normally say, well, skin, of course. And so we could easily protest that we don't hold this as the one authentic criterion. But such a protest would only betray the subtlety and the unconscious dimensions of the disease. While we find evidence of its inflamed nature everywhere we look. After all, what else do we agree on? so universally in our actual practice of life, but that we are inside our skin, that a knower and a doer dwell in this organic capsule. And sometimes we really like to hide in there. Sometimes we're trying to crawl out of it, <laughs> but we're still relating to it as this line of defense in a way. Even those trying to crawl out of it or trying to transcend it are, are still relating to it like it's a barrier. Now, because philosophy, again, amounts to how we do things, we can sense that the dominant culture and all of us affected by it, we all suffer from a bad case of philosophy. That is to say, we look at the behavior and infer the philosophy. If the behavior is not functional, the philosophy has got to be not functional. And so our bad philosophy expresses and seduces us into an incorporation of duality in the form of what we can call conquest consciousness, an incorporation of distance from Sophia, difference from nature, disengagement from the world, 
that word incorporation means we take it into the body. We make it real as our body and as our embodied experience. There's a deep meaning to the fact that the most dangerous predator in our global ecologies right now is the corporation. The corporation is the embodiment of our own conquest consciousness, inflected by things we refer to as politics and economics. The corporation hides behind its own artificial skin while tearing into the very real skin of ecologies and sentience all over the world, causing serious harm to human and non-human beings and the whole community of life. Now, we don't have to say corporations are somehow inherently evil. But we do need to see the context and sense mind as the mutual arising of contexts. In our present context, the vast majority of corporations, and perhaps the very idea of corporations as we have made that idea real, as we have made the corporations real so far, it seems to inevitably cause harm. Our current way of knowing and being, of living and loving, makes it easy for evil to take hold of corporations and to work through them and the people they employ. And somehow or other, we're suggesting there is a way in which this all comes down to skin, because skin remains the criterion we use to know what the world is, to know what a corporation is, what a corporation can and cannot do, what any of us should and should not do. Corporations as corporeal, as activities in a living world, they embody our delusions about our own skin. If we don't dispel our delusions about skin, we will never heal ourselves and our world. Therefore, in the dominant culture, we might suggest, along with Alan Watts, that transcending the skin becomes a matter of taboo. And that word taboo kind of indicates the primitiveness of so-called civilized society. Civilized people like to talk about how the primitives have taboos. The practice of magic is taboo in this culture precisely because it draws from the experience of mind as a process that transcends the skin. And the experience of self and world as profoundly relational, which means ecological rather than solid, or we could say economic. While economics in the dominant culture is filled with the most unskillful, magical thinking. For instance, the invisible hand. I can just hear a magician saying that. Where an invisible hand will pull your card from the deck. And we know that's just, no, that's a trick. It's a delusion. A culture rooted in wisdom, love, and beauty has nothing to do with economic thought and instead relies on ecological thinking, which we can reasonably call skillful, magical thinking. And that kind of thinking, skillful, magical thinking, or ecological thinking, represents a grave danger to any culture rooted in ignorance. And anyone who's got skin in the game of a culture like that will potentially get defensive around anything that threatens that culture. If any of us are getting benefits from this culture, then we may feel threatened by what threatens that culture. And there can even be a kind of Stockholm Syndrome. There's been real research on this, that people marginalized in a culture can still support that, the culture. There's still something happening there, some process of identification that's complex. And so we're all at risk, doesn't matter 
even if we think we've been marginalized, even if we think we're struggling against the dominant culture, its philosophy can infect us. Watts describes this, Alan Watts describes this uh, taboo in the preface to a book he wrote called The Book on the Taboo Against Knowing Who You Are. That's one That really captures it. In the dominant culture, you're not allowed to know who you are. You're allowed to be told what you are. You're allowed to be told a certain set of dreams and stories, you know, like the coaches, self-help industry, all of it, one to empower you to be who you are, but it's got to be a capitalist story. It's got to be a story that aligns with this culture. And here's what Watts wrote in the preface to that book. He said, this book explores an unrecognized but mighty taboo. Well, that's a good line. Unrecognized but mighty taboo. Our tacit conspiracy to ignore who or what we really are. Briefly, the thesis is that the prevalent sensation of oneself as a separate ego enclosed in a bag of skin is a hallucination which accords neither with Western science nor with the experimental philosophy religions of the East, in particular the central and germinal Vedanta philosophy of Hinduism. This hallucination underlies the misuse of technology for the violent subjugation of man's natural environment and, consequently, its eventual destruction. We are therefore in urgent need of a sense of our own existence, which is in accord with the physical facts and which overcomes our feeling of alienation from the universe. How marvelous that Watts characterizes his sources of inspiration as experimental and even as philosophy religions in the sense that they rely on experiment and experience and thus they offer themselves for verification and they demand a philosophical spiritual attunement The findings of these experimental traditions so nullify the theories upon which the dominant culture is founded that they must remain taboo. Now, he mentions Vedanta, but the, the bag of skin phrase itself is quite popular in Zen. And many philosophies, many indigenous philosophies as well, would agree with Watts's characterization of some of the problems of the dominant culture. So these findings exist in many marginalized traditions of the dominant culture as well as appearing in the science of the dominant culture, ironically, right? So our own culture, our own science goes against the dominant culture's philosophy and our own philosophical and religious traditions have very vitalizing strands in them that also go against this taboo. They defy this taboo. But the, the findings of the science that Watts is talking about and that we have talked about, and the findings of the philosophies around the world, including within the dominant culture, they remain unmetabolized by most of us, and certainly by the culture as a whole. They are definitely kept at a distance. How? in part by means of the one authentic criterion that allows us to rationalize or evade a great deal of our own insanity. Now again, we've looked at all of this because of Yeats. Because Yeats makes it clear that magic relies first and foremost on the fact that mind transcends the skin. And the dismissal of magic and the fear of magic amount to the same thing. Dismissing magic, being afraid of magic, we dismiss it because we prefer to hide behind our skin. And we treat ourselves like walking capsules. We can call this the capsule epistemology. 
Epistemology is the technical term for our way of knowing. We all have one, even if we never use the fancy term, because we all think we know things. And we operate our lives on the basis of what we think we know. And we have some way of arriving at what we think we know. We don't say, I know randomly. We say, I know, and we have some kind of reasoning, some criteria. And Bentley's saying, well, basically, it's the capsule criteria. And Watts is saying the same thing. Now, the capsule way of knowing gives us capsules, by which I mean it gives us ourselves as isolated blobs, and it also gives us pills, literal capsules, in addition to figurative capsules of many kinds. The capsule way of knowing is the medicating way of knowing. And it is the cubicle way of knowing, the SUV way of knowing, the airplane way of knowing, the skyscraper way of knowing, the fracking way of knowing, the species extinction way of knowing, the red team versus blue team way of knowing, the Facebook way of knowing, and on and on. the capsule way of knowing that arises from this authentic criterion of our lives seems to come with serious negative side effects. And we might be tempted to think that this root criterion is perfectly acceptable, but it's just what we do with it that creates the trouble. And therein might lie our confession. This way of knowing and being is the way of knowing and being of a doer. The doer inside the bag of skin. It is a doing orientation to life, a style of relating to the world. That this doing epistemology pervades our activity matters, maybe first and foremost because we can then understand that it naturally pervades our science which is part of the gold standard of how we know things. It does this in countless ways, including the inclination of theory and practice toward atomization and fragmentation. Now, one simple example might be that 99 listeners out of 100 wouldn't stop to think twice if I were to say something like, well, they put each participant in an fMRI scanner. Now, in some other culture, we might find ourselves coming across that expression and saying, well, that's wait, that's uh, strange. Uh, hang on a sec. So instead of studying a relational ecology, these experimenters isolated what they referred to as organisms or individuals, and they stuck them into a dreadful machine all by themselves. Well, that's interesting. That's strange. I mean, it's probably valid findings in a certain sense, but not very ecologically valid not very true to a rich lived experience, that's a weird way of doing science. Now, scientists have done experiments with pairs of individuals. Of course, there's also social psychology and so on. But in terms of neuroscience, as far as I know, only Joy Hirsch and her team have pioneered inquiry into relational beings engaged in relational activity. We might call it relational dynamism, a study of the dance of life. Now, in a similar vein, Dr. Neil Tice offered a critique of what he refers to as the cell doctrine, the assumption that the body is made up of cells. In other words, we're a capsule made up of capsules. He refers to this as the foundational doctrine of Euro-American medicine and biology. It's not that the cell doctrine gives us nothing or renders a senseless interpretation of biological phenomena. It's just that it also reflects and perpetuates knowing ourselves as atomized and maybe as a a clump of atomized pieces. It's about parts and pieces, fragmentation. And by means of what Dewey and James alternately referred to as the intellectualist and psychologist fallacies, we actually start to overwrite our own experience because of what the science tells us. 
Now, so far, we don't experience ourselves as a brain, but brain talk is just more and more coming into the culture. It's starting to become incoherent because we're overriding our own experience. We don't experience ourselves as a brain. We don't experience ourselves as a collection of cells. And the cell doctrine can begin to interfere with our capacity to experience ourselves the way wise ones and sages in other times and cultures have experienced themselves. For instance, we could experience a flow of energy, wind, or something like what Asian cultures refer to as qi, ki, lung, or prana. But the cell doctrine might prevent us from even trying. Because of the cell doctrine, approaches like acupuncture, which works with the flow of qi, can get relegated to the fringe. And more holistic approaches to medicine, practiced in India, Tibet, and China, in, in those traditions, they can become a matter of alternative approaches, which are often looked at with a kind of derision. And we obviously want science-based medicine, but sometimes those who most militantly argue for it don't seem to question at all the current paradigms that have a hold on dominant culture science. The dominant culture in general doesn't reflect wisely, compassionately, and beautifully on the meaning and nature of science itself. Science is a concept, and we need careful reflection on it. Magic is perfectly scientific in the most essential sense, as is philosophy. Now, on the one hand, we could see some of what we're talking about as mere details. In other words, we don't need to think that we all have to convert to Tibetan or shamanic medical and healing practices. On the other hand, we do seem to have here a crisis of worldview. And we cannot seriously think that healing, wholeness, and profound health and well-being are the focus of dominant culture, science, and medicine. Or if we claim that those are the focus, we can't seriously think dominant culture, science, and medicine have the most ideal approaches and that we could never do better. That there couldn't be a genuine paradigm shift. Now, in any case, plenty of serious scientists and philosophers encourage us to see our apparent individuation or separateness as highly relative and from some perspective, delusory. Not only Einstein in his famous letter, but many other scientists see things this way as well. Now, Einstein's letter is pretty well known, but it's worth reviewing here. Maybe you've never heard the whole thing, and you can see uh, this letter online. It's, it is a real letter that he wrote. There are a lot of fake Einstein quotes out there. Some of them are nice. They're nice ideas, but they're not real quotes from him. This is dated February 12, 1950. Dear Mr. Marcus, a human being is a part of the whole called by us universe, a part limited in time and space. He experiences himself, his thoughts and feelings, as something separated from the rest, a kind of optical delusion of his consciousness. The striving to free oneself from this delusion is the one issue of true religion. Not to nourish the delusion, but to try to overcome it is the way to reach the attainable measure of peace of mind. With my best wishes, sincerely yours, Albert Einstein. The context of that letter is that Mr. Marcus's son had died, 
and he sought counsel from the great scientist. Now, perhaps ordinary philosophers and spiritual figures had failed him because there are nowadays professors of philosophy but not philosophers, and maybe there are nowadays lots of spiritual coaches but not many sages, not many realized people, not many true elders and wise ones. In any case, we can sense here a living love wisdom at work, seeing through or cutting through our supposed limitedness, breaking out of that capsule, often gets framed as a great liberation and a great peace. We see that in wisdom traditions around the world. Now, magic is about that, right? That's all what we're talking about here is getting out of the capsule. Yeats is telling us that's the first principle of magic. Your mind isn't in a capsule. Einstein's saying the same thing. So magic in this sense has to do with mutual liberation and genuine serenity and wonder. That principle, the borders of our minds are ever-shifting and many minds can flow into one another. We can call this the ecology of mind. And we can think of magic as a practice of liberation into larger ecologies of mind, ideally for the purpose of mutual healing, mutual nourishment, and in general, the mutual accomplishment of life, the co-creative evolution of life and the cosmos. That's true magic. We could say magical consciousness is ecological or spiritual consciousness. That does not mean everyone who believes in magic is also eco-literate, often far from that. It doesn't mean that everyone who is eco-literate also believes in magic, which is unfortunate, because it probably marks a limitation in their understanding of ecology. So it's quite interesting. Some people who believe in magic need to learn a lot more about how nature works, the mind of nature and the nature of their own mind. And some people who think they know how nature works might have to think again. Buddha himself expressed this, that it's very subtle and profound, this interwovenness that is the magic of the world. Any serious consideration of magic or ecology raises the bar on both sides when we begin to look deeply enough. Those interested in magic engage in spiritual materialism to the extent that they don't go all the way to the edge of their practice and engage with ecological and spiritual realities, especially engaging with traditions, because there's a lot of self-styled spirituality. New Age often really signifies, well, we just invented it, sitting in our apartment in whatever city, you know, some apartment in New York, and here it is, New Age teaching. Well, are you sure? And you're not going to check with the wisdom traditions? Well, because they're too hard to read, too much to study, it's too difficult, so we can just make up whatever we want, and we can say all sorts of things. And a lot of it starts to become incoherent or just doesn't have the full ethical, ecological conscience. But the same is true on the other side. Those who think they know a lot about ecology may have cut themselves off from deeper insights because they simply refuse to inquire into the true nature and meaning of magic and they don't study the wisdom traditions with care. To think that we can just pull out microscopes and the instruments and tools of science and say, well, now I understand nature, it's a, a pretty hubristic notion and it really doesn't accord with the wisdom traditions because the results there are not what those traditions teach. And this is part of Bateson's critique. It's why he himself said, look, I don't, I don't really subscribe to a lot of New Age beliefs, but why do you think I prefer to live at Esalen or hang out with the New Age people? I mean, I love my scientist friends and I, I'm very scientific, but the thing is that the errors that the scientists are making are, in some ways, more serious. He's felt that we had made a fundamental epistemological mistake along the way as we left the traditions that essentially taught us the magic of the world, the ecology of mind, that he was trying to 
invite people into. Now, Yeats himself referred to the possibility of thinking of this flow of minds, this ecology of mind in the widest possible sense, as a single mind or a single energy. And this has to do with the fundamental wholeness of life, the wholeness of the cosmos itself. Reality has no gaps. It's important to think about what that means. Reality has no gaps. And we can appreciate a fundamental non-duality of unity and diversity. As we said earlier, the notion of wholeness is essential. And on the Wisdom, Love, and Beauty blog, you'll find, for instance, a series of posts on wholeness, more focused on wholeness, called Hologram, Ecogram, Mandala. It deals with some of the challenges of a holistic view, and is still ongoing. There'll be more posts to come up on that subject. And it offers scientific and philosophical perspectives that help us to understand this first principle of magic. And we'll have some of that material in this series as well. Some of it's already appeared in certain forms, and then we'll have a little bit more. Now, depending on our background, we might have to think quite carefully and rigorously about this first principle. We've spent some time with it, but we might, it, might, it might not be enough. I mean, I think it's a far cry. I think we've scratched the surface. So even if you think, oh, well, now I'm, I'm really convinced that all sounds great, still there's more to do, I would, I would say. And if we're still skeptical, for sure, if you're just writing it off, you're not looking at the evidence, and that does happen. If we're honest, it's a lot to take in. And we shouldn't accept it blindly, nor should we write it off dismissively because we think we know so much about reality. Once we do begin to sense, at least sense the cogency and the reasonableness of this first principle, it might help open us to the other principles. Or maybe by considering the other ones, it works the other way, you know? I, I think the first principle could be like a mother tree because it, it seems like really broad. But maybe considering the other two principles will be more helpful for some people. So let's look at the second one a little more briefly because we did a lot of groundwork with the first principle. So this will be a little briefer. The second principle goes like this, that the borders of our memories are as shifting as that of our mind, and that our memories are a part of one great memory, the memory of nature herself. That sounds lovely, doesn't it? The memory of nature herself, the memory of the cosmos, Sophia's mind. You know, the Stoics used to think, that everything was the mind of Zeus. Well, they should have said the mind of Sophia. They were a little confused. They didn't understand. That's okay. But the memory of Sophia, we're all part of her vast memory, including what we'll do in the future, maybe, in some sense. And we can touch this in a variety of ways. For one thing, we can consider the work of Monica Gagliano, an evolutionary ecologist. You might have heard of her. Gagliano ran experiments demonstrating the capacity of plants to learn, which means to remember. Now, that's nothing short of astonishing from the standpoint of localized epistemologies and brain-as-computer metaphors, because it demonstrates what we could technically refer to as extra-neuronal memory and cognition. In other words, she proved that learning and memory do not require neurons. And that finding alone could help us to slip beyond the barriers that we are currently clinging to. If we already accept that mind is non-local and not dependent on things like neurons, the findings are simply a delightful part of life, nothing particularly astonishing. Gagliano not only showed that plants can learn, but she experienced their apparent capacity to teach as well, which she documents in her book, Thus Spoke the Plant. Being taught by a plant qualifies as a magical experience, it seems. Extra neuronal memory was also demonstrated famously or infamously by James McConnell. McConnell trained 
flatworms called planarians. Just very simple organism, small, and the flatworms have neurons only in one half of their body, the part we would designate as their head. After getting them to learn to respond to light, McConnell then cut them in half. Planarians can regenerate their whole body, even if you cut them into 200 pieces. Each piece can grow a whole new body. Now, obviously, if you cut off the head, and if memory requires neurons because mind is localized to the brain, then the half that lost its head and has to grow another head shouldn't remember anything that it learned. That all went with the head. It's like getting decapitated. We wouldn't think you'd remember anything. However, the half that could not have possibly retained memory because it had no neurons to do so still remembered. McConnell claimed to, uh, after that first experiment, to have replicated by teaching flatworms to respond to light, then grinding up those flatworms and feeding them to other flatworms. That one's been more difficult to replicate, but memory transfer was later demonstrated in rats using brain extracts. Not neuron transfers, but brain extracts. And it's been replicated more recently as well. And it's a shocking result that challenges current theories of how memory functions. You could look up uh, Shamrat and Levin, who replicated the finding with flatworms in a very sophisticated way because there were criticisms about how McConnell had done it. It's all very tedious work the way he had to do it. They they developed an automated way of doing it. And the automation means the machine keeps track of things and makes it easier but also more accurate. And then there's um, Betakara who uh, replicated it in mollusks. Now we also know that the memory of trauma can persist across generations. We know work, maybe you know work by Basil van der Kolk or um, uh, others uh, who have looked at the way, for instance, trauma can be held in the body. Uh, James Levine is another one, uh, or Peter Levine, pardon me. And there's been, I think, equally interesting research, quite fascinating research, by people like Dora L. Costa or Rachel Yehuda. Professor Yehuda collaborated with a fellow Minoan, it seems, judging by the last name of one of her collaborators. Now, these and other researchers looked at how trauma can pass through generations. Costa and fellow researchers looked at Civil War veterans. At the close of the Civil War, conditions in prisoner of war camps in the South got particularly horrendous. And the researchers were able to look at thousands of people. And here's what they found, that if a man had survived those traumatizing prison conditions of the late Civil War, and then he returned home and had a son, his son would have a 10% higher mortality rate if he could at least reach middle age. Now, we have no idea what other effects may have manifested in those men's lives since death statistics are probably about as solid an evidence we're going to get. We don't know, for instance, about their day-to-day well-being, whether they had anxiety and depression or anything like that. And keep in mind that if a man went to war during the Civil War but didn't spend time in the prison camps, his sons were fine. And if that same soldier who went to the camps had a son before going to the prison camps, that son would be fine. So they isolated all the variables, and what they saw was memory of trauma handed down beyond the boundary of the skin of the person who experienced the trauma. It's the memory of the event. Again, because it's not simply we could just say, well, no, the soldier came back and was scarred by war and then related to his son in a bad way. No, if the son was born beforehand, he was okay. Now, we can see this in other ways, too. And those who think that the memory of slavery and genocide here on Turtle Island doesn't still live with us, perhaps in the land, in nature, and in the human beings around us, It seems that people who deny that want to avoid a difficult truth. It's a little scary. Easier to hide behind our skin. Say, well, that happened back then to other people. Just being born black or indigenous here on Turtle Island comes with a whole lot of burden in most cases. 
Now, some of that, of course, we can attribute to institutionalized oppression that still actively exists, even if it wears civilized and cunning masks. But some of it might have to do with inherited memory and wounds that are calling out to be healed. We can go back and we can heal these things. We, we have to face them, though. No one knows exactly how this inherited memory works. Waddington and Baldwin were two of the early researchers who described phenomena that fall in a general class of inherited memory. Now, Waddington thought the mechanism came from hidden potentials in our own DNA. In other words, nothing new is inherited. It was already there, it just got triggered by something. And then somehow the organism remembered that it had been triggered. You know, there was, the idea was there was a mechanism. Baldwin thought learning could affect the process of evolution. Neither view amounts to something we would call Lamarckian, for those familiar with all these evolutionary theories. You can find research on these matters under names like the Baldwin effect and transgenerational epigenetics. But the point for us has less to do with mechanism. Once we have demonstrated memory outside of neurons, we have entered potentially new territory. But in any case, any serious inquiry into the second principle Yeats offers us might demand a new scientific paradigm. That's very significant. It'd be nice to acknowledge, I think, just let's take a moment, that not only trauma but also love carries down the generations, thank goodness. The memory of, of all the wise ones and sages who went before us and the memory of love that comes down our family line. The pediatrician, uh, Dr. Brazelton, filmed mothers holding their babies. He was very famous, like the inheritor of Dr. Spock's work. So he filmed these mothers holding their babies, and then over two decades later, when those little babies had grown up and had babies of their own, Brazelton filmed them. And he noticed that they held their babies in the exact same way that their mother had held them, even though they had no conscious memory. Now, if we stay in our capsule epistemology, we just leave this to the Freudian unconscious, of course. But in such a moment, those mothers holding those babies don't just remember their own being a baby, but they are remembering together with every stunning wild mare nuzzling and nursing her baby foal, every incredible wild whale mother caring for her child. They're is an astonishing resonance there, nothing short of real magic and a real memory of nature alive and alive in the moment. Now, I think these things are all beautiful, but let's consider a more edgy example. Russell Targ shares some of his research into the magical capacities of the mind under the rubric of remote viewing. Now, keep in mind that Targ and his main collaborator, Hal Putoff, published in peer-reviewed journals. One of the earliest of their published works was titled A Perceptual Channel for Information Transfer Over Kilometer Distances. It's a very technical title. Now, the title succumbs to the old paradigm because it relies on a non-local image of the cosmos. There's a person here, sends an image there, or there's information that must go Right? There's information that's transferred from one place to another. But in any case, the title gives a clearly technical vocabulary that amounts to saying, here's a research paper on ESP. That's what that means, a perceptual channel for information transfer over kilometer distances. It's a perceptual channel. How can you perceive over kilometer distances? You can't see with your eyes. What's the perceptual channel? Well, it's extrasensory perception. Now, this was published in a highly regarded scientific journal, an engineering journal, still in publication today. It's got a good reputation. It's, you know, good, stiff upper lip, serious science. Given the journal's reputation and its editorial standards, the editors felt the need to acknowledge the strangeness of this paper. It was peer-reviewed. And the problem was the peers couldn't find any fault in the experiment. So the paper couldn't be rejected on any sincere scientific ground. Nevertheless, the editors quoted one of the engineers, and you can look this up for yourself. I have it if you want to write Wisdom, Love, and Beauty. I can share it, wisdomloveandbeauty.org. 
Um, but one of the uh, the at, at the sort of you know there's a, a editor's page before the journal, and there they quote one of the engineers they consulted about this paper on ESP, and the engineer replied, quote, "This is the kind of thing that I would not believe in even if it existed." End quote. Now that foreshadows our future consideration of the fear and reactivity to magic that we all must confront. But it just goes to show you, here's a peer-reviewed journal, the peers couldn't find a problem with it, but one guy still says, well, I wouldn't believe in this if, even if it existed. But well, here's the evidence. One of the remote viewers that Targ worked with was named Pat Price, and Price had an excellent track record for remote viewing. In general, a lot of these remote viewing experiments work the way Targ describes, he's got a book on this. And there's also a TED Talk, which is a good one, and it, these experiments work by having Targ would go in with Price, and they'd be in this sealed room, totally insulated, so no possible way for a signal to get in. So it was elect- electromagnetically shielded. And uh, their collaborator, Hal Putoff, he would sometimes have a liaison from the military, you know, because the military were paying for this, and they they weren't going to be trifled with, you know. They didn't want to be scammed. Obviously, it would be embarrassing. Military's funding some kind of baloney experiment, but these were serious scientists. Targ and Putoff were serious scientists, but there'd be a military liaison to observe sometimes. So they would randomly select a target, and then they would go there. And after some time, you know, giving time for them to be able to get wherever they were going, um, you know, but uh, making it so that you you couldn't be sure. They might be five minutes away. They could be a full, whatever, half an hour or an hour away. Uh, But after a certain time, then... uh, Targ would ask Price, okay, well, tell me what you see. And Price would enter the remote viewing state, which we can think of as a form of magical consciousness, and he would describe what he saw. Now, in one experiment, the randomly selected location was a recreation area called uh, Riconada Park. And Price described it as a water purification plant. And he drew a picture. He described a square pool, which he said was 65 by 80, or rectangular, I should say. Rectangular pool, 65 by 80, and a round pool about 100 feet in diameter. And then he drew, uh, he saw two tall water storage tanks. Now, in fact, the pool was 110 feet in diameter. Price had said 100. A round pool, 100 feet in diameter, and it was, there it was, a round pool, 110 feet. And the rectangular pool was 75 by 100. He had said 65 by 80. Now, that is incredibly accurate for having no idea at all where these people were going. So thus, even getting two pools and saying one's rectangular and one's round, that should be mind-blowing. We should just be stopping in our tracks and saying, wait, maybe magic is real. Now, what about those water tanks? Price had two water tanks in his drawing of it, and he called the place a water purification plant, but it was a swimming park. Well, I guess sometimes you you miss, right? Well, not long after that, a few years after that, Targ saw a photo of the same location from 75 years prior to when the experiment was conducted. Now, that same location had, in fact, been a water purification plant with two water towers that at the time had been the tallest structures in town. Let that land. Price somehow touched memory. Memory and present at the same time. Sophia's memory, nature's memory, the world's memory, right there. He saw the location in the present as it was and in the past as it was. It's impossible for the current paradigm to explain this sort of thing. It's not really, it's not there. It's impossible for the current paradigm to explain how the 14th Dalai Lama, as a little boy, who had never been to the home of the 13th Dalai Lama, nevertheless ran straight to certain areas in the palace to get objects he knew were there. He went and he went to get his false teeth and he ran and got them and his watch, and he ran and got it. Uh, in my own life, I've also had this experience. I had the experience that dogged me for years. I've had a few experiences like this, but one in particular of uh, remembering objects 
that I, I knew I didn't own. And the one in particular that kept coming up for years when I was a boy was a magic trick I had never seen. I knew I didn't have the apparatus for this trick, at least part of me did, and yet part of me knew I did and would keep looking for it. And I had never seen anyone even do the trick. I just, I knew I had it. And I even dreamed about it sometimes. And I later read about it and realized that I could not have owned it because the apparatus required um, wouldn't have been something I could have had as a boy. But as a boy, I would often look for this magic trick. I was sure it was somewhere. As far as remote viewing in general, Targ himself discovered something we might find as astonishing as the experiment we just considered. Years after conducting these experiments, Targ read the teachings of the Tibetan philosopher-sage Padmasambhava. And he said that, that these teachings describe practices for entering the very state of mind required for remote viewing. These teachings are over a thousand years old. In other words, philosophical or spiritual practices can cultivate magical consciousness. And that's part of the meaning of visionary love wisdom. We can all touch this space, enter it, realize ourselves as this spaciousness of awareness. When we practice the arts of awareness, perhaps, perhaps deep meditation or a shamanic journey or trance or a magical ritual or ceremony or maybe working mindfully and in a sacred way with holotropic medicine, we can go inexplicably into the living memory of the world. We touch it immediately. It's not like going back in time, but entering it now. There's past, present, and future. Human beings get caught up in these. We get trapped in our past, trapped by possible futures, trapped even in the present moment thinking we're being in the moment or living in the moment, but we're trapped in a, na in a now that is not the wholeness that the wisdom traditions offer us. They teach us a fourth time beyond these three. When we drop the three times, the fourth time remains. And mysteriously, we can touch how our own mind stream millions and millions of years ago was a different life form crawling on its belly in the mud. It's not like remembering something that happened before. It's the experience of this incredible cycle of life, the experience of the living, dying, non-duality, the dance, the experience of being the living memory of the world, that the world's memory is alive and alive in us, and that this is not the first time this mind stream has appeared here, so to speak. It's always difficult, of course, when we start to enter the non-duality of unity and diversity of self and world. We can get lured back into the capsule view very quickly. It's important to recognize that we also have prospective memory. In the fourth time, past, present, and future abide not as a trap, but as liberated we rely now on our memory of the future and even the fact that our present self could reach back to our past self in a funny way or our future self could reach back to our present self in a funny way. It's something that we have to experience. It depends on practicing our life in a certain way, but we can have that experience. We can have the experience that something now is happening because something in the future is reaching back to us. In general, the world relies on the memory of what will come or what might come. It remembers the possibilities for the future. And it's all a bit mysterious. But we work with the magic of perspective memory all the time. Right now, I could ask you to remember to be present for your life the rest of this day. To remember that you want to realize the true nature of self and reality. To remember that you want to presence wisdom, love, and beauty in every thought, 
word, and action. And at the end of the day, you might say to yourself, wait a minute, I was supposed to remember to be present for my own life. I was supposed to remember that this life matters in each moment. In each moment, the truth is there. I was supposed to remember to attend to the nature of mind and attune myself to the mind of nature, but, but I forgot. Then in the morning, as you sip your coffee, you might remember, I want to be present today. I want to remember what I am, discover and create what I am in non-duality, discovery and creation all at once. There is a magic in this memory into the future. You and I could cast that spell, the spell of awakening, the spell of primordial awareness coming alive and alive. That's good magic. If you have questions, reflections, or stories of magic to share, get in touch through wisdomloveandbeauty.org and we might bring some of them into a future contemplation. Next time around, we will look at the third principle that Yeats gives us, and I think you'll enjoy it. And things will hopefully continue to unfold in interesting and maybe even a little bit spooky ways. Um, we've already considered to some things that took us into the wilderness of love wisdom. I think especially the work of Russell Targ can be a little bit much to process. So sit with it. Sit with it and use the magic of your perspective memory. Sit with it and even allow yourself to touch the depths of memory in nature and to see the memory of nature around you. What, what does it mean? What does it feel like? What might you sense? Until next time, this is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, reminding you that your soul and the soul of the world are not two things. Take good care of them. <laughs>